Hi, welcome to the Bioinformatics chat. Before we start, a quick announcement. Flavio Rump got in touch with me about his new podcast, Bio2040. In Flavio's own words, Bio2040 is an attempt to shed light on the biggest problems facing us in biomedical research and drug discovery. I personally found Flavio's episodes rather interesting, and I thought you may enjoy them too. So check it out at buy2040.com or find the link in this episode's show notes. Today I'm speaking with Emmy Willis. Emmy is assistant professor at the University of Washington and uh, she studies biodiversity and she wrote several papers on the subject of estimating the uh, species richness and in particular Today we'll be talking about her recent preprint, which is titled Rarefaction, Alpha Diversity and Statistics. Emmy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Roman. It's great to be here today. Emmy, tell us a bit about yourself and uh, how you got to where you are. Yeah, sure. So, um, so Roman, I'm, I think of myself as an applied statistician, um, and a lot of my early training as an undergraduate um, was in applied statistics and data analysis, and I was trained by um, really some of the best applied statisticians in Australia. Um, I then moved to, uh, to Cornell University in upstate New York to pursue graduate, graduate education in statistics. And at Cornell, I got a much more um, theoretically grounded training. So throughout my whole graduate program, I continued to collaborate and really um, try to focus on developing practical methods um, for, for biologists. With a, and I got really interested in microbial ecology methods um, but I think really now my training broadly spans both theoretical and applied statistics, and I try to do a lot of collaborating as well. Um, after I, I finished my, my graduate work, um, I was offered a position um, here at the University of Washington in their Department of Biostatistics as a tenure-track assistant professor, and I'm really excited to, to keep working on developing methods, especially for microbial ecology, especially focused on biodiversity um, here in Seattle. Cool. Uh, so your uh, preprint that we'll be discussing is titled Rarefaction, Alpha Diversity, and Statistics. I, I was wondering if it's a reference to lies, dem lies, and statistics? Um, you know, it wasn't, but that's, that's a funny connection. I hadn't, hadn't thought of that. Um, really, I titled this paper to try and be as, as broad as possible because I think there's a lot of discontinuity between the way that statisticians approach um, estimating what microbial ecologists call alpha diversity indices um, and, and, you know, what people are actually doing in practice. So by titling the paper in this way, I was trying to grab as broad an audience as possible to try and bring everyone into this dialogue about how we should be analyzing microbial ecology data with a focus on, on diversity and alpha diversity. Okay, so let's start with the basics. What is diversity as understood in, in ecology? Sure. So I think of um, I think of alpha diversity as any one-dimensional summary of high-dimensional compositional data. So this comes up in microbial ecology, for example, when um, you have an OTU table um, or an ASV table or uh, MED table, any sort of abundances where you've got different samples and then the number of times you observe each um, taxonomic unit in each of your samples. And so when Obviously, in microbial ecology, we often see many different microbes, many different um, sequence variants. And what we want to do is try to summarize this information 
in some compact way, but we have a lot of microbes, so it's, so it's pretty difficult. So alpha diversity came up originally in macroecology and is now broadly used in microbial ecology to summarize this type of data structure. So common alpha diversity indices include um, uh, species richness, so the total number of, of different um, taxonomic units in, um, in the population, and uh, another common alpha diversity metric is Shannon diversity, and there's this whole, I think of it as a mini industry actually of um, alpha diversity indices that people propose to try to, to illustrate a certain point or illustrate a certain structure that they think is present in their data. And uh, why does diversity matter? Uh, why is it worth uh, measuring or estimating? Yeah, that's a great question, Roman. And I think people, um, people argue about this. I think diversity is a fundamental question, especially when looking at a new ecosystem. So if you're trying to study some new, some totally unexplored microbiome, a natural question to ask is, well, how many different things live there? And so diversity arises naturally, I think, as a first order question um, before we can even start talking about, um, about function and uh, ecosystem complexity. How many are there is a pretty fundamental, um, fundamental question to ask. In addition, there are many different settings in um, especially human health, but also environmental health, where having a more diverse population can uh, indicate a very healthy ecosystem or an unhealthy ecosystem. So, um, for example, in the vaginal microbiome, having a large uh, diversity of, of microflora is, is great. It keep, every, everyone seems to keep everyone else in balance. Um, on the other hand, there are, uh, there are instances, there are different ecosystems where uh, having too much diversity indicates that the ecosystem is out of control. So in many, many different applications, diversity can be a marker for ecosystem health as well as just a natural summary statistic. So from that point of view, Uh, when we think about different uh, measures of alpha diversity, so you mentioned um, the species richness, which is simply the number of different uh, species that we can observe, and there are some other metrics. Uh, but specifically from from the point of view of um, you know how meaningful the metric is, um, the interesting thing about species richness is it's very sort of discontinuous, right? Uh, It is, let's say, 500, even if uh, one of the species is, uh, like there's a, only one individual of that species, and then the individual dies, and it suddenly goes to 499. Whereas uh, some other metrics, they're more continuous, and so while the abundance of the species goes down, the uh, metric adjusts. Uh, continuously with that. So I'm wondering from uh, this point of view, uh, why does uh, specifically species richness matter? Because it seems like those other metrics, um, they're more meaningful because they also take into account whether the species is represented at a significant level. Yeah, that's a, that's a great comment to make. I think um, for this reason, we have uh, all of these different abundance-weighted diversity indices that are not just counting the number of different species, but um, putting more emphasis on the ones that occur in higher abundance than those that are um, occurring in low abundance. So species richness, as you point out, is irrespective of, of abundance. On the other hand, um, in a couple of different uh, or many different ecology settings, just having some idea of 
who's present in any abundance can indicate something about the health of that ecosystem. And so it may not matter that there's only, um, you know, 10 to the negative five um, units of a certain microbe, that microbe could be very disruptive. It could be very pathological. And so just having it there in any abundance can really upset an ecosystem. So I think this is why species richness is still an important, is still an important metric, um, metric to have. One thing that we haven't, um, haven't touched on yet, however, is that species richness depends not only um, on the ecosystem that we're talking about, but also the taxonomic grouping that we consider. So we can have species richness at the phylum level. We can have species richness at the genus level. We can have species richness at the ASV level. Um, and so we need to, I think, also be clear about when we talk about species richness, what, at what taxonomic grouping are we going to, to discuss? Yeah, that's an excellent point. And that also applies to other alpha diversity metrics, right? That's right. That's right. All of these, uh, we, can, we can talk about the phylum level uh, Shannon diversity, for example. So in uh, microbial ecology specifically, this is a very recent thing, right? Because until recently, before we had uh, sequencing, we simply could not measure this reliably. We could culture bacteria, but uh, a lot of... Uh, bacterial uh, species are not culturable. So uh, this is a very recent thing. And uh, I'm wondering, well, first, how how did people do things be- before sequencing? How, like, if, if this is a useful metric, were there other substitutes before sequencing? And, and also, this makes me a little bit skeptical, because could it be that we are counting the species simply because it's such a simple thing to do. And we will talk later about the difficulties in estimating the richness. But uh, because we have this data, this seems like an obvious thing to count. And this is why uh, a lot of papers report it. But can you talk why this is not simply looking, you know, under the uh, lamppost where there's more light instead of uh, measuring something that may be more important? No, that's a, that's, that's really fair enough, I think. And the question of whether or not diversity is a meaningful thing to measure is, is one that's often that's often discussed, and people have very strong opinions, um, especially when they when they think that the answer is no. So really, <laughs> I think of <laughs> really I think of um, diversity as a really coarse summary. So you know, like I said, the first thing that you want to ask when you have some new sequencing toy to play with, or the first time you see some um, new new microbiome, so maybe like deep ocean microbiome, for example, a natural thing to ask is just who's there and um, or how many people, how many different individuals are there. And these are questions that we ask before we can even start to talk about function. We can't ask what is an organism doing until we know um, if it's there, for example. And so this is, uh, this is the angle that I think of um, as motivating diversity. So as I think we get more advanced um, sequencing technologies, we have higher resolution as we have a better understanding of microbial ecology, di- questions about diversity um, will become de-emphasized, and I think they are being de-emphasized compared to where microbial diversity was maybe um, maybe five years ago or maybe ten years ago. Um, but I think for new ecosystems, which will constantly be will constantly be unearthing new ecosystems, diversity is a is a good good question to ask about. And uh, then now that we mostly figured out what diversity is and alpha diversity is. Uh, but by, by the way, do you want to briefly talk about like what other diversity are there? So there's beta diversity, gamma diversity. What are they for? 
Yeah, sure. So, um, so I think of, so as I said, I think of alpha diversity as any way of summarizing a single community into a single number. Um, beta diversity, I think, captures two multiple communities into a single number. So, for example, indices like the Jacquard Index looks at the extent of overlapping taxa between two ecosystems. So this is a way of just summarizing two ecosystems into one number as opposed to just comparing one ecosystem. Gamma diversity comes up in defining alpha diversity and beta diversity. The natural, there are natural questions that arise about how much difference there is between the two or how much, um, how much shared diversity is there between one ecosystem and another. And I think ga- gamma diversity came up from a mathematical perspective to, to answer questions about differences between alpha diversity and beta diversity. So I think of gamma diversity as sort of a derived quantity that doesn't have as much intrinsic meaning as alpha diversity and, and beta diversity, um, just because I think it's coming more from the mathematical standpoint rather than an ecological standpoint, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now let's get to rarefaction. So what is rarefaction? So one problem that um, that ecologists first noticed when they started to look at, in particular, species richness or, or total diversity was that as you sample more and more individuals from a population, your diversity can only increase. And so when one's trying to compare two different ecosystems and far more samples are seen from one ecosystem than the other, regardless of any biological or meaningful difference between, um, between the ecosystems, the ecosystems that, that had more e- individuals sampled tends to have higher diversity. So ecologists said, well how many times we sample the ecosystem doesn't say anything about it. That's just an artifact of the experiment rather than, than of the biology, rather than of the ecosystem. And so let's try and find some way of being able to compare different ecosystems um, meaningfully, even when we've sampled one ecosystem more intensely. So rarefaction is a proposal that dates back to the 50s where it says, okay, well, if we have one ecosystem where we sampled more individuals than the other, we can't, compare, we can't compare it to an ecosystem where we sampled fewer times, so let's normalize our, sample, our samples to compare them as if we observe the same number of individuals in each sample. So, that's, um, so rarefaction came up as a way of trying to contrast ecosystems fairly in a way that's irrespective of the number of individuals or sequences that we saw in each of the environments. Yeah, and... Uh... Do you want to describe like more technically what what it means to rarefy? So I guess uh, there there are two ways to look at rarefaction, right? You can uh, either randomly select subsets of the bigger sample to match the size of the smaller sample, right? This is one way to look at it, or you could simply apply the mathematical procedure to to get the estimation because for that you don't have to simulate, right? There is just a formula that tells you based on uh, how many counts for each species you observed, it tells you what's the rarefied number that brings the um, bigger sample down to the smaller sample, right? Yes, that's correct. So you can either, um, you can you can frame rarefaction as either randomly discarding uh, reads from the larger sample to until you discard an, um, as many as what's left, until what's left is the same number as what you have in the smaller sample, um, but that's you know a random procedure, and we don't really want random procedures. So you can think about doing that 
um, doing that once, then you know, replenishing your sample and then doing it again and then replenishing your sample and doing it again and then taking the average of what's left if you do that procedure many, many times. So you can, so there are sort of closed form ways of, of talking about rarefied diversity as well. Yeah, so this rarefaction, it sounds like a great idea, but in your paper, you argue against rarefaction. So what's your uh, main criticism of rarefaction? Well, from a statistics perspective, um, it's actually, for, from the perspective of a statistician, it's actually really crazy to think about throwing away your data. You've gone to this ex incredible lengths to perform a very expensive experiment, and then you're just going to discard information that you took a lot of time and money to gather. And so the paradox that's, that's going on here is that the way that we're currently calculating alpha diversity is not statistically correct. So, so I want to maybe bring our listeners' attention to, for example, the analysis of clinical trials data. So suppose we're interested in looking at the way in which um, some concentration in a patient's blood increases with the dose of, um, of some, some certain drug. When we talk about how much the blood concentration changes with dose, we'll not only be talking about that, that a slope estimate, but we'll be talking about it with some standard error. Okay, so, so there are two problems and two parallels that I want to draw here um, to the analysis of alpha diversity. The first is that we need to have some, some rigorous way of actually estimating alpha diversity. And then we need to have some rigorous way of talking about the uncertainty or the, or the variance um, in those estimates. And in microbial ecology, I don't think we're doing a good job of addressing either of those problems. Okay, so what's special about alpha diversity compared to, for example, trying to find slopes on regression parameters? The problem is that if we're calculating alpha diversity based only on what we observe in our sample, we end up with negatively biased estimates for our population diversity. So what do I mean by population diversity? By population diversity, I mean the total number of um, different microbes in the, in the environment that we're considering. So in the actual environment, independent of the experiment. This is, what we're, this is what we're interested in when we perform an experiment. We're not interested in the samples that we take because they're random. We're interested in making some statement about the ecosystem that we're studying. And so when we take some, some small sample from that population we're going to see less diversity than is in our, our entire population. But with statistical methods and with statistically grounded estimates, we can get an estimate of how much is missing from our, how much is missing from our sample that's present in our population. And so what's happening is that our estimates for alpha diversity are negatively biased. We have less diversity in our sample than exists in our population. And what rarefaction is doing is further increasing that bias by making our samples even smaller. The statistical approach to this problem is to work in the other direction and to say, well, can we figure out how much is missing and then can we account for what's missing? So rather than reducing the bias, uh, sorry, rather than increasing the bias by, by rarefying, we're trying to correct the bias by figuring out how much is missing and then adjusting for it when we go to talk about total diversity. So I think it's worth um, making a distinction. I think we, um, we may be talking about two different problems here, right? One problem is to estimate the alpha diversity, the uh, species richness, 
uh, in a given sample. Um, and uh, yes, it, it seems quite obvious that if you if you perform rarefaction, you get even uh, farther from the truth that you were before, right? Because you you're lowering your estimate, whereas it was already an underestimate. Mm -hmm. But I think the the problem that we started with while discussing rarefaction is comparing alpha diversities from two different uh, conditions. And uh, if we think about them as two different problems, I think it's clear we shouldn't apply rarefaction to the first problem, uh, estimating the actual richness. But it's not that obvious to me that um, this is not applicable to the second problem, the problem of comparing two populations. And to uh, push back a little bit on what you said, so you said we're discarding information and we are not calculating the variance and uh, um, confidence intervals. I think it should be possible, right? Because if we have a bigger sample and then we look at what would happen if we had a lower sample, because there are many ways to discard randomly these uh, excessive reads, or excessive samples, it should be possible to use something like Bootstrap to calculate the variance, or even uh, because this is a simple statistical procedure, I think there should be like even a closed formula for the variance. So it seems that we're not simply discarding information because if we have a bigger sample and then going back to lower sample, we can actually estimate this variance. That makes sense. I, um, that's a common criticism that I hear and a common pushback that I hear from people uh, in, in talking about alpha diversity from a statistical perspective. So maybe let's set aside the question of variance and standard errors for now and, and come back to it in a moment. But one distinction that I want to say, okay, so, you, so you're saying that we shouldn't rarefy if we're interested in just coming up with a number for a diversity estimate, but, but rarefaction should be fine, um, as you're saying, if, if we're trying to compare two ecosystems. So one scenario that I worry about a great deal is let's consider two different ecosystems that have exactly the same species richness, but they have a different structure for the rare species versus the common species. Okay, so, um, so if you're used to looking at rarefaction curves and used to comparing samples via rarefaction curves, one of these ecosystems is going to um, be very steep to start with and then plateau off. Um, and the other ecosystem is going to have much more rare species and so increase very gradually. But overall, they're both plateauing towards the same level. So in this, in this scenario, there's obviously a difference in the community structure, but there's no difference in the species richness. So if you're interested in comparing the species richness of the two ecosystems, if you rarify, you're going to get vastly different rarefied estimates of species richness. But that's going to give you the false impression of, of different, different richnesses between the two ecosystems because they're actually the same. And so what I'm advocating for, the, the, um, the method that I'm advocating for where we actually try to estimate how much is missing based on the, how many species are missing from our sample based on the structure of the sample and then comparing the estimates of total diversity accounting for their errors actually correctly picks up this distinction picks up the situation where we have two ecosystems that have the same total diversity but maybe different community structures and that can bias that can distort the results of a rarefied analysis yeah that's that's a very good point 
So is your argument that there is simply no reason to, to verify or are there any valid use cases for rarefaction from your point of view? Well, I try not to say that nothing ever has any validity. Um, and I'll, I definitely understand where rarefaction came from. But I think what really happened here is that there's been a breakdown in communication between ecologists or microbial ecologists and statisticians. So rarefaction was developed as a tool to solve a certain problem. But the fact is that statisticians have much better tools to solve the same problem, um, at least in the problem of, of estimating um, diversity, estimating total diversity, estimating different alpha diversity metrics. And so I'll, I'll hesitate to say that it's never, never useful, but the fact is that, in my opinion, statisticians have studied this problem um, very carefully for, for decades and, and have better tools than, than rarefied estimates. So uh, taking into account your, uh, your argument that rarefaction is sensitive to the abundance structure of the, of the population, so how many, uh, like how much each species is represented. Um, but surely the other statistical models, and specifically parametric models, which assume a certain form of um, probability distribution, which, which we'll talk about in a, in a minute, I guess. Um, so they also have their limitations in, in the sense that they assume that, that this probability is conform to our expectations, our priors. If we consider this problem of uh, we have data from two populations, we want to compare their uh, species richness, then in principle, it should be an empirical question whether rarefaction or some other statistical methods, which one works better. So at least in theory, we should be able to run both methods on uh, many, many occasions and see which one represents the, the truth better. And as you said, the fact that rarefaction is sensitive to abundances, it says that probably rarefaction will do worse, but we could still run this experiment. But in practice, I wonder if it can be done because we never know the true species richness, right? No, that's a great question. So one, um, one criticism of species richness estimation is that we don't really have any way of doing validation because any true validation of a species richness estimate would require exhaustively sampling the, the entire environment, so um, sequencing every single microbe, which essentially destroys the environment, um, which, is, which is not at all desirable. So validation is challenging in, in this problem. On the other hand, um, so there's a couple of different threads I want to go off on to answer this question. The first is that rarefied estimates aren't really estimating any, anything in particular, because what you're saying, because you, there's no fundamental ecological interpretation for a rarefied diversity estimate, because it, you're, rare, you're rarefied down to a certain number of reads, um, and that that's totally arbitrary. Isn't there some kind of correspondence, like if we uh, frame the question in terms of how many species are there that are represented at a certain level? Right, uh, or a certain density. And uh, it seems to me the rarefied result would be an estimate of that rarefied question, which asks not about all the species, but species above a certain threshold. Isn't that the case? 
Yeah, I think I think that's a that's a reasonable um, interpretation for it. On the other hand, if what you're interested in is, for example, which species occur in abundance greater than one percent, which is I think the question that you're trying to answer with, um, with saying, okay, well, how many species would we see at a rarefied level of you know ten thousand or something like that? Um, those questions could be better answered with some sort of relative abundance model and not with species richness. And so if that's, I think that if that's your motivation for understanding species richness, then you're using the wrong tools to answer that question. If you're interested in figuring out which species occur in relative abundance greater than, greater than 1%, then, then don't use species richness and don't use rarefied species richness. Use some relative abundance model. But again, so my original question was, even if we're interested in this uh, global question of like absolute species richness, um, sure, rarefaction, now that you explained it, it doesn't sound as great, right? But there's still maybe a remote possibility, but still a possibility that it will perform better than the existing models. Yeah, fair enough. So let's go back to something you said earlier about um, rarefaction being a flexible, non-parametric method while species richness estimates um, maybe constrain your, your parametric framework a little better. Is that a fair representation of your question from earlier? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. So rarefaction is in fact um, actually imposes very strong structural assumptions on your microbial community. So let's think about, let's consider the assumption of whether or not microbes enter your sample independently. So whether individuals that make it into your sample make it in there um, essentially at random from your population. Mm -hmm. So if you've ever seen a microbial community um, under a microscope, which I'm sure you have, you know that there's, there's very strong spatial structure that's present in any microbial community. So spatial structure actually implies a lack of independence. We have, we have spatially dependent microbial communities. And so what that's saying is that we cannot, we cannot say that microbes enter our sample independently. Okay, so, when, so let's then consider what's happening when we rarify and we randomly discard individuals, randomly discard reads. We're, in, we're saying that the, micro, the first microbe we discard is chosen at random and then the second microbe is chosen at random from the microbes that are left. So that's implicitly saying that microbes behave independently and enter our sample independently. When we do any sort of subsampling procedure, so this is coming out of the, um, the bootstrapping literature, we want our, our subsampling, we want our bootstrapping procedure to reflect the dependence structure that our sample was generated with. And so while we look at microbes under a microscope and we say, okay, they're spatially organized, for example, when we discard them, um, when we discard reads randomly, we're saying that microbes behave independently. So I would actually say that while rarefaction seems non-parametric, it actually makes pretty strong assumptions about the independence of, about the dependence structure of micro of, of microbes and how they how they enter our sample. In contrast, the species richness literature is actually um, is actually pretty developed in this in this respect. We actually have a reasonable understanding of the effect of dependence on species richness. And so, while you may think that species richness models are um, more tightly more um, finely constrained they actually do allow, many of them do in fact allow um, for these sort of dependent structures such as um, spatial organization that, that rarefaction does not. So I'd actually say that um, a poor parametric model, sorry, a poor non-parametric model 
um, may actually be far less flexible than a large space of parametric probability models. And so that's why I'd advocate for statistically grounded species richness estimates as opposed to rarefaction. That's very interesting. I would think that any statistical model, so I, I would think that that assumption of independence is is not a very strange one, exactly because I don't see how you could get around it, but you're saying there are models that take that into account. How do they work? Yeah, great question. So the answer to this question um, leads me to delve a little further into the the literature, the statistical literature on species richness estimation. So species richness estimation has historically um, been approached from the perspective of mixed Poisson models. So mixed Poisson models say that um, microbes enter your sample independently. Uh, sorry, every microbial taxon contributes a certain number of microbes to your sample, but all of the microbes have a different um, have a different rate for that contribution. So, there, so each microbe contributes a Poisson distributed number of individuals to the sample, but some microbes are um, more abundant than others, and so they have higher higher rates. Yep. So this is the, called the mixed Poisson model, and coming up with a good flexible model for the rates at which these species contribute to the sample um, uh, was was a long-standing question. There's been many different proposals. Gamma is sort of the most studied one because um, everyone likes distributions that you can name, and a gamma-mixed Poisson model is a negative binomial model, and everyone loves a negative binomial model. <laughs> um, so more recently, some of the more modern approaches to, to species richness have started to relax that assumption, and we say, okay, well, rather than imposing this constraint that all taxa behave independently of all others, let's consider broader classes of probability distributions than just, for example, mixed Poisson distributions. So it was actually shown a couple of years ago, or I showed a couple of years ago that you can relax this framework by considering alternative parametrization of distributions with support on the non-negative integers. Um, so the ecological interpretation for exactly what dependent structures between taxa is not clear. That's very. That's actually a very hard thing to get out of the models. But we do know that the, that we're no longer imposing these very strict independence assumptions between taxa. So we we sacrifice some ecological interpretation for vastly increased flexibility in modeling. So I'm trying to understand this. The the mixed fossil model makes sense, and I I see how it doesn't assume independence in that all the rates for so uh, there is a Poisson rate corresponding to every species the rate at which it is uh, sampled in sequencing and uh, those rates they all come from the same distribution and that makes them non-independent right when we uh, learn something about one rate we implicitly learn something about other rates as well that's only assuming that the this prior is is not fixed, right? If it's fixed, then they are independent, right? It's only if we adaptively sort of learn that distribution as well from the data. And that seems tricky. Yeah, so mixed Poisson, fitting a mixed Poisson model to, to any ecology data informs your estimation of what we call the stochastic abundance distribution, so this distribution of rates. So we're always trying to estimate... Um, that distribution of rates. You can reduce the problem of estimating the number of missing species to estimating um, the to the problem of estimating the stochastic abundance dis distribution. This distribution of rates at which each species contributes. But 
one nuance I think that's um, that's relevant in the mixed Poisson model is that you're assuming that all that at the taxon level all taxa behave independently, but individuals within the same taxon are correlated via via this rate. So the the mixed Poisson model, unless you're also learning this um, stochastic distribution from the data as well, it assumes the independence of different species, right? But you're you're talking about uh, different approaches that do not have this assumption. I'm trying to to think how they could work because it seems to me that if, as as you say, this uh, sampling is correlated and this correlation plays a major role, then if we have two different populations that we want to compare in terms of their alpha diversity, in terms of the species richness, if they were, if they have some spatial structure to them, and we sample them sort of from from different regions, uh, from regions that are not analogous in their in their population structure, it seems like this is an impossible problem to to compare them. Uh, how can we draw any conclusions in that setting? No, that's that's fair enough. And I think if we don't have a clear idea of exactly what ecosystem we're trying to characterize, then madness lies down that path. You know, we're not, um, there's no, if, if there's nothing meaningful, if there's not a meaningful ecosystem that we're trying to study and we're just putting samples together from different heterogeneous places, then, then we're not going to get anything meaningful out of it. Not going to get anything meaningful out of sequencing and com- combining all of these samples um, and, and sequencing them. And so I think it is really careful, it really important for um, microbial ecologists to carefully consider the sampling strategy that they do use um, and, and make sure that what they're actually observing, their, their sampling units, are actually reflective of the population that they're trying to characterize. You mentioned some alternatives to the mixed Boisson model, which I guess you're referring to your model of um, uh, frequency ratios. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? How does that work? Yeah, sure. So like I said, the, these I think these models are really cool, but we, they do lack some of the interpretability of mixed Poisson models. I call these Kemp-type models um, because they are based on a class of probability distributions proposed by Adrian Kemp, um, who's a British mathematician um, who worked on this in the, in the 1960s. So there are many different ways to characterize a probability distribution. Um, you can talk about its probability mass function or probability density function if it's continuous. You can talk about its cumulative density function um, you can talk about its moment generating function, um, or, and, and so on. So there's this, uh, there are many different ways that you can, um, uniquely parametrize a probability distribution. There are also ways to characterize probability distributions based on transformations of, for example, the, its mass function. So a unique characterization of the negative binomial distribution, for example, is to take the probability that a microbe is observed X times and divide that number by the probability that the microbe is observed x minus 1 times. And if you consider possible functional forms for that ratio, if the functional form is is linear, then that probability distribution must be negative binomial Poisson or binomially distributed. Okay, so so rather than trying to describe a negative binomial distribution as, for example, a gamma-mixed Poisson, you say, okay, let's take ratios of probabilities and you end up with a linear form, then that's another way to characterize the negative binomial distribution. 
what I'm doing in this idea, when I go down this idea of modeling frequency ratios, is I'm actually saying, let's get outside of the negative binomial model. Let's try and consider more flexible distributions than just linear um, than just linear models for those frequency ratios. And there's a nice mathematical result that that came up in this context, which is that if you are willing to consider more flexible forms, and if you're willing to consider um, more flexible ratios of uh, polynomial functions, then you you still have a, an actual characterizable probability distribution, a distribution that's proper, mm-hmm. but I was able to show that it's not constrained to be mixed Poisson anymore. And so what this is saying is that even though we can't get a good handle of exactly what this distribution is, what it is in terms of its mass function, what it is in terms of ecological interactions between different taxa or different individuals, we can say that it is um, not only not in the mixed Poisson framework, but more flexible because it nests some mixed Poisson families. So I think that was part of the motivation for... um, for using these distributions as we say, okay, well, we don't know exactly what they are, but we do know that they are more flexible than anything that anyone's ever used. Um, and when we have, in my, when we look at microbial ecology data, we see that um, we, we do have violations of these independence assumptions. So coming out, coming at it from a more flexible perspective, coming at this problem from a more flexible modeling standpoint is highly desirable in this case. I, I just realized uh, there is some resemblance. So in the continuous case, when we want like a very flexible distribution, we can go for uh, Gaussian processes, which are like very flexible distributions. They're only characterized by the covariance structure, the correlation structure between different points. So in some sense, this is somewhat analogous in that uh, in, instead of uh Covariance between two, two points. We're looking at these frequency ratios between uh, two adjacent points, but there is there's some even if shallow, but there seems to be some analogy there. No, I think that's a really nice um, a really nice connection that you draw. Actually, on the other hand, one of the challenges with with fitting models like Gaussian processes to models for estimating species richness is that you're not really interested in characterizing the covariance structure of the microbes that you did observe, you're interested in the, mi- the covariance structure of the microbes that you didn't observe. And it's very hard to talk about, um, you're not only extrapolating, you're not only trying to extrapolate in that case to, how, to, to estimate the number of species that are not in your sample, but you're trying to extrapolate what type of dependent structures there are in these microbes that you didn't even see. So I think it's adding... While it's a nice, while it's a nice approach, and I'd be interested to see if any literature comes out in that area, you're almost overcomplicating the problem. It does seem to me that if you don't observe any microbes from a particular class and you don't observe any microbes from another class, then not only figuring out whether or not they're truly in your population, but figuring out how those microbes interact seems to be a kind of impossible data analytic problem, in my opinion. Absolutely. I, to, to be clear, I wasn't proposing uh, Gaussian processes as an application to this area, but I just saw the, the analogy. So if we had uh, the continuous case, we would probably go for Gaussian processes. But because we have this discrete case, which is the number of measurements and the number of um, species, then this seems like a discrete analog of Gaussian processes where it's a very flexible thing, which is characterized by the, the relationship between 
sort of adjacent points. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a that's definitely a reasonable connection in terms of uh, yeah flexible covariance structures for for interacting um, interacting points. Once we estimated this stochastic distribution, so the, the distribution from which we draw uh, the rates, or I guess not not rates, right? Uh, this is no longer about rates because we're no longer in this mixed Poisson land. That's right. There's no inter- there's no so stochastic abundance distributions only come up in the context of Poisson mixing. And so we've actually done away entirely with the idea of a stochastic abundance distribution when we go outside of the mixed Poisson framework. Right. So we, we're estimating directly the distribution on uh, non-negative numbers. And then uh, the number we're looking for is the probability mass that is assigned to zero, right? That's the number of unobserved species. That's exactly right. And so how do you justify this? I mean, it's very flexible, which almost seems a priori uh, a justification. But still, when you try to validate it on like real data, you have to simulate some data, right? And, and the simulation necessarily imposes some assumptions on the, the data generating process. And then again, we, we're not sure what the actual data generating process in nature is. So how do you get around that? How do you validate your model? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So one, um, so there are a couple of different ways you can think about validating, validating this model. The one is that because this model actually is a superset that contains the mixed Poisson model, you want to know that it can correctly detect mixed Poisson models when you are simulating data from a mixed Poisson model. And, and these more flexible, like actually fitting these models in practice, do correctly detect that very well. So if you actually simulate data from a negative binomial distribution and then you fit these models, you will correctly detect a, binom- a negative binomial distribution more than 99% of the time. So that's one good justification. As we talked about earlier, validating this on real data is really, really challenging because we would have to essentially destroy an entire ecosystem to validate it, and then that ecosystem species richness is no longer no longer meaningful because it no longer exists. The validation that I tend to go with, and as an applied statistician, I think this is consistent with my my general philosophy of statistics, is that the best validation that you can have is is good fit to data. So when we start modeling frequency frequency count ratios, we can actually look at what we observe fre- our frequency count ratios to be in our data. And we can look at what they're uh, fitted to be under our model, under these models. And so when you use this, um, this sort of goodness of fit, these goodness of fit diagnostics using this more flexible model, you see vastly improved fits compared to other procedures that exist, for example, for um, fitting mixed Poisson models. So you'll see that in actual, so what I see is that in actual microbial ecology data, these more flexible distributions just fit the data that we observe far better than the mixed Poisson distributions, um, mixed Poisson models um, that we're comparing it to. So I think that's the next best thing that we can have to any sort of true validation. So I have two thoughts about this. So first, it seems like a great idea that instead of showing that this model is uh, great on an, on an absolute level, it should be sufficient just to show that it's no worse than the mixed Poisson, right? <laughs> and hopefully better. <laughs> if everyone's using mixed Poisson, then if, if we show that it it can perform well on the data generated by mixed Poisson, that's a great way to 
to, to prove that your model is superior. But on the other hand, when you're talking about the goodness of fit of your model to the data, it seems a bit unfair because, as you said, your model is much more flexible and uh, that's what you should expect, right? How, how else could it be? If you fit a more flexible model, you, you will get a better fit. That's fair enough. So one thing to keep in mind also is that more flexible models are not always better because more, as you introduce more flexibility, you be, your estimation problem becomes much more unstable. It becomes much harder to estimate those parameters um, with any with any level of precision as, you know, in the same way that um, estimating the mean of a hundred different random variables is much harder than estimating the mean of only five random variables. Um, introducing additional flexibility in a model is not always desirable. And so um, you make a great point that while you're expected to see more better fit, the trade-off could be that your, your data, your model fits the data either too well, or it could be way too unstable. And we don't see that because we are still imposing some constraints on on the functional form. So it's not a completely, as you would say, non-parametric model for um, for species richness. It's a, a nice, flexible, but still constrained um, parametric model for your data. So one problem I think that the mixed Boisson model has is that it doesn't cope very well with the uh, very abundant species, right? If you have very, very high counts, that makes it harder to, to fit a Poisson distribution or, or mixed Poisson distribution. Yeah, and that's a that's a great point, actually. So in the context of these non-mixed Poisson models, these Kemp-style models, remember that we're structuring the entire statistical problem to predict the number of species that are missing. And so with the aim of doing that prediction, we actually put more emphasis. We can actually, the, the way that the the model works out is that we put more emphasis on the species that are observed infrequently because they're the most informative for estimating the number of species that weren't observed. So actually it comes out very naturally what the optimal weighting of rare and common species is um, in these Kemp-style models. But how does the model actually adapt to these high frequencies? Because if you have uh, this ratio, which is... um in your case, it's not linear in the number, right? The ratio of uh, adjacent probabilities non- is non-linear in the in the count itself. I think it's a fraction of polynomials, right? In your case, mm-hmm. yeah. And and if you have this uh, long stretch of zeros and then one, uh, do you have a sense of how this ratio of polynomials adapts to to this case? Yeah. So in theory. That would not cause um, that would not cause any problems in practice because, as we talked about before, we want to reduce the risk of overfitting. Um, we'll actually discard observations that um, discard any microbes that were observed. Okay, so what you'll see in your data is a is a breakpoint where you know you'll see species you'll have some species that are observed once, some species that are observed twice. And so on, and maybe by the time you get up to the, you know, maybe you'll have no species that were observed 19 times. And so, the way that we constrain um, the fitting of these models in practice is to ignore any of the species observed 19 times or more. We say that's where we have a discontinuity in our data, and that's where it stops being informative for our um, for our rare species. So, to also answer your question in terms of how does it know what the optimal Weighting is we use a procedure called iteratively weighted, iteratively reweighted least squares in fitting these models. And so what that 
allows us um, to do is that the model adapts itself to um, to the more rare end of the data and then it will figure out that weighting that you then use as your covariance for your prediction for your prediction down to estimate the number of species observed to predict the number of species observed zero times got it yeah but isn't it a bit ironic that in, in your quest to avoid throwing away data you end up throwing away data these uh, high high counts yep no that's uh that's definitely fair i think um <laughs> yeah uh, that that's a very fair criticism on the other hand i think that it's relevant to throw away data that's uninformative it's not relevant to throw away data that is informative so if you're trying to estimate the number of species observed zero times and you think about which microbes are going to be informative for for that number number of microbes observed once twice three times and so on are going to be informative number of microbes observed um, 20 times is going to be less informative and the number of microbes observed 19,423 times is going to be basically not at all informative for the rare species structure of your data so we're I think, um, well, you raise a fair point that, yes, we are maybe in practice ignoring some of that data. We're ignoring the data that's not informative for the rare species structure. And we're putting our emphasis instead on the data that is most informative for the rare species structure. Yeah, that's a good point, especially compared to rarefaction, where it's the opposite. So you retain the very frequent species and throw away those rare species that are supposed to inform your, uh, your estimate. Exactly. In uh, one of your uh, papers, I saw this great analogy, this great example of counting cars on a freeway. Uh, do you want to tell that example? Oh, wow. That's uh, you, you're digging into ancient history here. I, I can remind if you want. Yeah. Why don't, why don't you paraphrase it for me? <laughs> I think that came from one of my co-authors who's, uh, who's got some great analogies for these things. Yeah, I, I really liked it. So the example was that if you stand on a freeway and you count cars and you count cars and the passengers in them. So you count the number of cars that passed you that contain just the driver and then the number of cars that contain the driver and one passenger and the driver and two passengers, so three people and number of cars that contain four people. And uh, this is in some way analogous to counting the number of species that have one individual, two individuals, three individuals. And then from that data, you try to estimate the number of cars number that of have... cars with have zero people zero in Zero people, right, yeah. exactly. And mm-hmm. uh, your co-author who wrote that, he took, or, or she, I'm not sure, um, they took that in a different direction. Uh, uh, their point was that, you know, how do we interpret this number of cars with zero passengers? So... One way to interpret is that the number of cars that just stay in a garage somewhere in this uh, city or in the state or in this country. So that matters and that's sort of ambiguous. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. I, I recall this uh, analogy now. No, I, um, I'm fortunate to work with some, some very clever people and one of my... Um, one of my, my mentors in graduate school was John Bungy, and he has all, all sorts of wonderful witticisms um, about this, this the species richness problem and also about microbial ecology more generally. John was really concerned that microbial ecologists weren't thinking deeply about what species richness actually means and essentially how localized a concept it is. I think he worked a lot with microbial ecologists who were studying, for example, lake water and seawater, and he really wanted to just say, okay, well, you can estimate some species richness um, of 
you know, uh, you can estimate some species richness based on your data, but is that is that species richness reflective of the, you know, one cubic meter of seawater that surrounded your sample? Is it reflective of um, the entire Pacific Ocean? Probably not. Um, is it only reflective of like, you know, uh, 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters around that jar. So I think John's point there was to encourage you to think about, okay, you can do species richness estimation, but should you? And what is the population from which you're sampling? Is it homogeneous? Is it heterogeneous? Because you can't say any, you can only say something about the population from which your sample is reflective. Yeah, exactly. And and uh, also makes you think, what are the assumptions behind your model? So the direction in which I wanted to take this example is so you count the number of cars that actually drive past you containing like one person two people three people and so on and so naturally when you extrapolate to zero people the question should be how many cars uh you know have uh, passed me where there are actually zero people but they still Mm -hmm. passed me and so i Mm -hmm. i found this very funny and we're certainly moving in the direction when uh, a few years down the road, we could see uh, self-driving cars that just transport themselves without a driver. <laughs> At the moment, this seems ridiculous. But on the other hand, it's a great reminder that, you know, we we can fit models. So we could fit a fossil model to this car data. To estimate the number of self-driving cars yeah. that haven't been built yet. Yeah. No, that's that's fair enough. Exactly. Yeah. We, we, ha- we have to be mindful of the... The assumptions exactly. we're making. No, that's, uh, yeah, exactly what the, the limits, I think, of species richness estimation are as important um, to understand as the capacity of species, there's the capabilities of species richness models. I think that's that's exactly the point. Yeah, I have another another co-author of mine. I'll, if you liked the car example, I'll bring your attention to another analogy. Another collaborator is often trying to estimate the number of drug users in a certain population in, in either Europe. He works a lot with drug users and he says, okay, well, how many people show up to safe injection sites? You, there's, there's a registry. And so there are some people who will show up once to these registration sites. There are some people that will show up, um, you know, only uh, will show up once and then show up again and then never again. And there are some people who show up three times or some people who, sh- some people who show up every day. And so this, uh, this collaborator of mine is interested in estimating the number of drug users in the entire population, including those who don't show up to these sites. On the other hand, trying to use the structure, um, the abundance structure of people that do show up really is making some, um, some pretty strong assumptions about whether or not there's any consistency between the types of drug users that do show up and don't show up to these safe injection sites. And I would say that it's actually really... Um, it's maybe not even possible to use that data for that specific prediction problem just because we may have such different populations of people who who do and do not consider showing up to safe injection sites. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. So uh, clearly there is some difference between bacterial richness and the, uh, the drug users who uh, show up. And uh, given this example that shows presumably the inadequacy of, of these models. How can we justify that the bacterial richness is not in the same category? Actually, these models make more sense for, for bacteria than for uh, drug users. Yeah, I would say that I think species richness estimates will always be producing some number, but what that number is actually representative of 
is something different. And I, I always will come back to at what scale is your population homogeneous? At what, popula- at what scale is it the same population versus a mixture of a whole bunch of different populations? Um, and I think that's actually a question that goes back to goes back should be put back on the microbial ecologists. You microbial ecologists have a much better understanding than statisticians of how localized population structures are for microbial communities. And so that that's where I would say the answer to that's I think your question is best directed actually to a microbial <laughs> ecologist. Fair enough, yeah. And uh, what is your opinion of uh, lower bounds? So I saw somewhere. Uh, it's probably one of your papers, uh, but it could be so- something else. I saw this claim that uh, the only thing that a non-parametric model can estimate is actually a lower bound. So un- unless you impose some kind of probability uh, probability distribution assumptions, you can only estimate the lower bound. And uh, how how useful are lower bounds? Is that something we should even bother with? Because so, for example, if we just take the observed richness, it is a lower bound, right? Mm-hmm. Right. We don't have, we don't even have to to correct it, or if we verify, it's a lower bound. But then we cannot compare these lower bounds because all we all we know about them is that they are lower bounds. We uh, we don't know how close they are to the thing they're they're bounding, how precise they are. That's right, and I, I take the same issue with um, with lower bounds. I would think that a good there, I think there are going to be some structures where um, you know maybe there's so much inconsistency in the data, or maybe our data is just such low quality that it's going to be impossible to come up with any meaningful estimate. Essentially, we have a we would have a confidence interval that spans from the number of species that we did observe all the way up to positive infinity, for example. So so lower bounds can be useful in these cases. On the other hand, I think there's it's very hard. Often what we're interested in in microbial ecology is comparing two ecosystems and comparing two lower bounds doesn't seem to me to say anything about two different populations. So really with all of these with all of these questions, the ultimate goal is not saying, okay, there's definitely um, 22,000 uh, taxa in this population. It's often saying, okay, well, when we perturb the ecosystem in this way, this is how the number of taxa changes. And so I think lower bounds are interesting mathematically, but not particularly, not from a practical standpoint for, for microbial ecologists. One thing that I do um, want to bring your, your listeners' attention to, though, is that people, um, one thing that, that's common to see is rather than reporting the, the sample species richness, people will report the chow one lower bound estimate for species richness. And then they'll talk about modeling it as if it's, not a lower bound. So, so Chow one, the Chow one index, as it's often called, is actually a lower bound for the a low, an estimate of the lower bound for the to- for species richness. And I think that's often abused in the literature as an actual estimate, when in fact comparing lower bounds is, in my opinion, not particularly meaningful. So I do want to draw. I'm trying to raise at least a little bit of awareness about how you know you can compute lower bounds, but compare them as if they're lower bounds. Not as if they're they're unbiased estimates. Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's draw um, attention to this thing. So, if like a practicing microbial ecologist, they have some data set. What what are they supposed to to do with it? So, I, I looked it up in uh, in Chime, for example. I think the default alpha diversity metrics that it reports are 
the observed richness and the actually Chow Bon index that you just said is a lower bound. And it also has a script for verification. So it sounds like all the wrong answers. So what is your advice to people who want to do this properly? Yeah, um, great question. So one of the challenges for species richness estimation is that there are different estimators and different models will be appropriate to different situations. Um, so for example, if you're looking at vaginal microbiome data, the vaginal microbiome maybe has uh, 50 taxa, I think less than 100 taxa. And having these very flexible models, these non-mixed Poisson models is way overkill and actually is very unstable in these cases. And so really compact, simple models um, work, work really well in these situations. On the other hand, when you have very high diversity ecosystems like, um, you know, maybe like soil microbiomes or maybe um, water, any sort of um, uh, aquatic microbiome, you do need that additional level of flexibility. So one thing that I think biologists are often devastated to hear is that there is no one best species richness estimate and there is no one best alpha diversity estimate. All of these will depend on not only the structure of your data, or the right answer to, to what analysis should you do will depend not only on what is the structure of your data, but also what questions you're trying to answer. Because species richness estimate, species richness is often talked about in situations where really it has no bearing on the scientific question of interest. And so being really cognizant of those, um, those tools is, uh, being really cognizant of both of those issues is I think going to universally improve our field. A couple of tools that I will, um, will advocate for, uh, if you're in a high diversity ecosystem um, and you have good quality data, um, I think my software Breakaway is, is some of the most flexible, um, fits some of the most flexible statistical models and I'm going to recommend it. On the other hand, um, for lower diversity ecosystems, um, a software program, um, different software program called, called Catch-All fits more compact streamlined um, mixed Poisson models that is that will often be sufficient, often be more than sufficient um, for, for data analytic questions. Um, on the other hand, one thing that we alluded to earlier in our chat, Roman, but haven't come back to yet is this question of, um, of, of variance of standard errors. So one thing that rarefaction, um, rarefied species richness estimates never give you um, is a is a realistic idea of how uncertain you are in um, in your estimate in your rarefied estimate of of species richness and one thing that species richness that true species richness estimates will always do is give you some standard error so having those standard errors actually is what allows you to do the comparison between different ecosystems so I would say that regardless of what species richness estimate you want to use as is most appropriate for your ecosystem comparing them in a way that accounts for these, the uncertainty in estimation is really important. And one program that's implemented in um, the, the R package breakaway is a function called beta, which is what allows you to do alpha diversity comparison rather than just estimation. So I'll let someone else figure out what the best model is um, for their data, and I try to provide guidelines for that um, in, in user manuals for my software, but I do always think people should be coming back to beta um, which is this program for comparing alpha diversity across different samples. Which is a bit confusing, uh, calling the program to calculate or compare alpha diversity beta. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, yeah, that was pretty confusing. And in hindsight, I probably should have <laughs> chosen a, a different name. I'll, was it like um, tongue-in-cheek or what was your... It was quite tongue Yeah, it was tongue-in-cheek. Um, I was trying uh, at the time to pull people 
so so all of these issues that we have with not having appropriate variance estimates for alpha diversity are, in my opinion, exacerbated when we move to the beta diversity case. Hmm. And so um, I'm sort of, I'm trying to increase awareness on um, on both of these fronts about how it doesn't matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter if you're doing species richness, if you're doing Shannon, if you're doing Jacquard, any alpha diversity and any beta diversity and any summary statistic of a microbial community needs a standard error attached to it. Um, and having uh, and and you need those um, those standard errors in order to do meaningful comparison across ecosystems. One one thing, one reason that standard errors are so important in comparison is that your standard error is really where your precision is reflected. And by precision, I mean the number of reads that you did see. So you do want a sample. If you took a sample from um, a community and you had a huge, you you sampled it maybe almost exhaustively you do want your standard error to reflect, um, you do want the um, any comparison that you make to put a large amount of confidence in the estimate that you come up with based on a sample for which you had a lot of reads observed. And so so these standard errors are really where that, that precision and these number of reads get taken into account more so than the estimate themselves. Oh, that's a great point. I, I haven't thought of it. Yeah, so... How would the statistical model figure out that you are close to this uh, sort of saturation where you probably sampled everything or almost everything? What are the signs in the data that that is the case? If you've sampled almost everything, you'll be seeing a lot of repeats. You'll have very few species that are observed only once, very few species that are observed only twice. Many of your species will be observed, I don't know, 10 times or more. And so what you'll see is this very strong thinning sort of of the rare rare end of the spectrum of frequency counts so you'll start to see this um this shift away from species observed once twice three times and um towards species observed you know far more times and this is an indication that you're close to what you call saturation and that you're not often seeing new species Right, because we assume that it's not the case that there is like a literally a single bacterium, right? If it's some non-trivial population, eventually you'll you'll get more than one read out of it. Exactly, underpinning all of these mixed Poisson models is is I think the um, I think in practice the reasonable assumption that um, your population is essentially infinite compared to the size of samples that you can take from it. And that's what allows um, you to really detect this, this thinning out of the rare species structure. You mentioned standard errors, and uh, I'm curious, the the distribution of the estimator, I think it's probably not normal, right? Because on the one hand, that's there is right. a clear left uh, bound, the, the observed, mm-hmm. or if you're looking at the unobserved species, the clear left bound is zero, and it's uh, almost unbounded to the right, so... Simply reporting standard errors is probably not enough because you cannot apply your usual intuition about standard errors, right? That's right. So that's why you have a program to compare to uh, populations. Exactly. So the idea is that even though we can't say anything about um, the distribution of our estimates in any particular one sample, when we start aggregating them, we can have a much better idea of these trends once we account for which samples we have more precision in, in understanding and which samples have less. Cool. I think we'll be wrapping up. Is there anything else you'd like to mention to our listeners? 
actually, yeah, there are, uh, there's, there's two, um, two events I want to promote. One thing I often hear from microbial ecologists is, oh, I really wish I um, you know, knew more about statistics, but in my, in my training, um, it's just never been a big focus of my program, for example. So a couple of, um, so, so one fantastic resource that we have here in Seattle, actually, uh, at the University of Washington's Department of Biostatistics is a summer institute for statistical genetics. Um, we have a couple of different summer institutes um, for statistics that where we bring in, where students can come in from from outside universities. From we often have we have many international students as well um, who come to sort of get intense training in in statistical methods. So if if um, any of your listeners are interested in um, getting a more solid foundation in in their statistical training, and they have a month in in June in Seattle, which is a great great time and place to be here. Um, great time to be uh, in, a, in a great place, then I strongly encourage um, any of your listeners to, to check that out. That's on the University of Washington Department of Biostatistics website. Another great resource um, that I do encourage um, new microbial ecologists to, to check out is some of the workshops um, that, are, that are conducted out of the Marine Biological Laboratory in, um, in Cape Cod, which are specifically focused on understanding microbial uh, modeling and understanding um, microbial diversity and also on um, bioinformatics pipelines and processes. So um, I'm involved in particular with a course called STAMPS, Strategies and Techniques for Analyzing Microbial Population Structures. Um, and STAMPS is a great course. We have people coming from uh, from Chime and from PhiloSeq and from Dada2 and all of the, uh, many of the um, fantastic software tools that are out there um, to, to specifically train people who are new to microbial ecology in um, the different pipelines and different uh, options for statistical analysis of their microbiome data. So for readers who, for listeners who want to know more, um, I strongly encourage them to check out some of those training programs, especially because the summer is a nice time to be in, be in both of those places. Very cool. And uh, we'll put the links to these resources uh, on this episode's webpage. Thanks so much, Roman. Yeah, Amy, it's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. It's been uh, re been really great to talk with you. I think um, part of these, many of these problems that are coming up um, in microbial ecology are are coming from not having not enough interface between statisticians and microbial ecologists. So I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today and your patient questions and uh, patiently listening to my answers. So thanks so much for having me here. 